Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honor him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant, Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. It's the word of the Lord for the people Thanks. of God. Thanks be to God. So here we are, friends, coming to the end of our patience. <laughs> On the third Sunday of Advent, we're coming to our, the end of our patience collectively, Advent or not, and this is an awfully long time to wait. This pandemic season has seemed like the most Adventy of Advents. All the normal motifs are in play, hope, peace, love, waiting, longing, expecting, lamenting. But we also have this overlay of nine months of anxiety and strife and isolation and uncertainty. So here we are on the edge of yet another holiday season where we have to make negotiations with ourselves and with our loved ones, where we have to make negotiations for our neighbors, whether we can see them or not. Our best laid plans are being put asunder and this is really frustrating for a lot of us. Here we are with the announcement this week, uh, maybe like an injection of joy, this announcement of a approved vaccine, the hope of like a warp speed return to some bit of normalcy. And as much as I, a pastor and a parent, really want to return to normal, I really want to see suffering alleviated. This, I, I really want to be able to like hold my um, nephew who is a few months old and my niece who is a few days old. I, I want to hold some of these oak kids that have come to us during this pandemic time. As much as I want these things, as much as you all want these things, I've seen this, uh, this hope, this desire most persistently um, throughout this time by our friend James Charles. Many of you know him as Sugar Man. Um, uh, literally every time I've seen James over the course of these last nine months, he's greeted me with, I hope everything can go back to normal. I hope everything can go back to normal. I just want everything to go back to normal. Yeah, James, me too, all of us too. But our normal has changed and all of us have changed along with it. This is the most adventy of advents where we change with our hopes. Leaning in this long 
eventually like changes our posture even. And we're not careful when you wait this long, you can get tired and then drop the ball and forget to hope. Scripture is filled with all of these stories of forgetting to hope, getting tired. We lose our vision. We think that this is all that there is. But then we light a pink candle, this signal for Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete means joy, rejoice. It reminds us of joy. And it reminds us that joy is not automatic and that sometimes we need reminding of joy. Like Paul's letters to his friends on the frontier of a new reality over and over, he reminds them until it becomes true. He says, rejoice again, I say rejoice. And this sort of stubborn joy reminds us that there is always more, that this isn't all there is, that there is always more. Joy magnifies. Joy magnifies God's love and purpose, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. So we come to Mary's famous song today. This scripture out of the mouth of Jesus's soon to be mother. This is a song of joy. This is a, a magnification song. Mary's soul expands as she expounds on the God who has come to her and made her a crucial part of the plan, the rescue plan. She becomes a, a bearer of the gospel. She becomes literally the bearer of the coming Christ. And like Jesus himself, Mary and her hymn sometimes get so familiar they can be easily domesticated. We can put them in a box. We can make them sweet and harmless. But this Magnificat song is wild. And it has a history of being put on the band book list. Like, for instance, like during the British rule of India, the Magnificat, Mary's song from Luke 1, was not allowed to be sung in church because it was too subversive. It, it might give people ideas, right? Or in the 1980s, the government of Guatemala found Mary's words too dangerous for public recitation. You couldn't just go out in the street and start talking Magnificat. This might inspire the poor to revolt and it might give them divine sanctions for that sort of preferential treatment. In a similar time as the 80s, like in Argentina, there was to be no public display of Mary's song because the mothers in the Plaza de Mayo, whose children had been disappeared during the dirty war, began to write these words on protest posters. Mary's song had teeth. While imprisoned in a Flossenburg um, concentration camp that he ultimately died, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about Mary's song. He wrote, uh, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is the most passionate, most vehement, and one might say most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. It's not the gentle, sweet, dreamy Mary that we often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks here. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas hymns, but the hard, 
strong and uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world, of God's power and of the powerless of humans. In a world that is so like subtractive or closed down or desperate or dead ended, Mary lives a magnifying life. It is a life in which there's always more. It's a life oriented in hope and open to joy. A magnifying life like Mary's has a vision of justice and shalom and abundance. It's not just focused on my walk with God or my experience of Jesus. It has a vision for justice and shalom and abundance. The song which Mary bursts into is transgressive because she somehow sensed that these two irreconcilable categories, like the oil and water of the cosmos, human and divine, were now being made one. Nothing else could stay the same. This all happened in an unwed virgin teen who would become the mother of God become human. So when that happens, the, the low get lifted. The high get brought down and the rich and the poor swap roles and the buffet line inverts and everything seems to be up for grabs now. It's like we're all in this new reality, walking backwards and playing left-handed as creation is being made new. You've, do you feel that disorientation? And maybe you've been feeling a disorientation and oftentimes we think a disorientation is, is completely bad and doesn't have some good consequences, but also when the new creation comes, there will be a disorientation. One thing is for sure, Mary's song is no tame praise and worship song. It's a radical vision of and a participation in God's justice. Uh, a hope like this is in line with that apocalyptic vision of the mother of the stars. She's crowned in stars in Revelation. Uh, this Advent season as you prepare for Christmas, I hope you're reading your book of Revelation. Uh, and, and this vision has, has this mother of stars. It's almost games of Thronesy. She's casting down the dragon um, as death is defeated and the renewal of all things comes to be on earth as it is in heaven. But then back on earth where all of us are right now, a God magnifying life in the mold of Mary dares to see the low, the, the low raised up in the, the high brought down a few pegs. It dares to see those who are only used to the dregs being filled to their heart's content. This is not because Mary has like ideological commitments along these lines. It's because she knows what it feels like to be on the underside. And she knows that this is not how God's world is supposed to work. God has other plans and God can be trusted. She knows that Israel's greatest strength is her weakness and her reliance on the God who has shown strength in his arm. This is a, a faith that Mary has and that she, she um, gives to Jesus, she forms in Jesus. It is a faith from an Exodus family tree. There is a hope 
in the God who makes a way where there isn't one. This is a song that pours from the mouth that is not used to being filled with food, but can't keep quiet about who God is and what God is doing. This is a, a magnification. Another thing a magnifying life does is a magnifying life bears and births the new creation. At Easter, we talk a lot about new creation. We celebrate this spirit resurrected Jesus, the first fruit of the new creation, the first born of a new humanity that now needn't fear sin or death because sin and death have been taken care of, taken on in Christ's own body and now have no hold. Our Advent season, our Christmas time is connected with that Easter celebration and that Easter affirmation and that Easter proclamation of good news because at Christmas we articulate the beginning of that movement. That movement is not only God to us, but it's primarily God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The word becoming flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood tabernacling among us. The Gospels, they struggle to tell of this good news and they, they, they use some, 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 some verbiage along the lines of this, this birth, this entrance being the first day of a new week. God and humanity reunited in walking and working together as creator and as creature among creation once again. And God is making all things new in the midst of the old. God is speaking, not singing, let there be. And there was over all of the community of creation, over all of the church. And Mary is like the tip of the spear of this. She's the initial bearer, literally, of new creation. She bears new creation in her womb. A God-magnifying life bears and births this sort of new creation. None of us, literally none of us, will have the exact vocation of Mary. But each of us can, can echo it. E each of us can mimic it. Each of us can imitate Mary in some specific way, some small way, uh, of bringing new creation and birthing new creation and sometimes gestating new creation in our small corner. Uh, Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle on Time, she talks about this for artists and you can extrapolate for your own uh, calling and your own gifts. But she talks uh, about how as an artist, she believes that each work of art, whether it is a work of great genius or something very small, comes to the artist and says, here I am, enflesh me, give birth to me. Uh, and so you, you can extrapolate that and say every, uh, if you're a student, every uh, project or every assignment, every paper comes to you and says, give birth to me, enflesh me, uh, put me out into this world as a sign and symbol and foretaste of this kingdom. If, if you're a parent, this happens. If, if you're uh, a banker, this happens. If in, in, literally any uh, thing that you are doing um, can be uh, uh, part of what God is doing and making things new. Consider though, the sort of like concentration and attention that this all takes. The sort of 
risk and vulnerability that this takes, the kind of cost this takes. Ask any mom, and we have a couple new moms uh, at Oak Church, ask any mom how transforming, and maybe that's a euphemism, uh, how transforming giving birth is. Like to your mind, your body, your identity, your habits, your hopes, your free time, your other relationships, how transforming it is to bear a child, how much time it takes, what a wedding of natural and supernatural it requires. Ask a mom how many other people it takes around you to make it work. What if this is precisely the sort of metaphor, like the sort of allegory for the ways that we join God in joyful renewal? What if this sort of surrender is what it might take to bring about healing around us. I also love how in, in uh, Luke's gospel, we're given Mary's, some of Mary's thoughts, a lot of Mary's words and a ton of Mary's actions, but, but we're not given a whole lot about Joseph uh, in this. This is a, a little bit of an aside, um, but like how countercultural um, to, to know what Jesus's mom is thinking and doing and singing and not really know a whole lot about what Jesus's dad is doing, right? But even in that, I, I find some challenge and encouragement to, to wonder about how Joseph is joining in Mary's vision. Mary, Mary is leading with this radical vision of uh, turning over the tables of how things are in the world. And, and I presume, I assume that Joseph is joining in and supporting that. Uh, so maybe this season, you're not the one birthing. Maybe you're uh, the midwife or maybe you're uh, the partner that is joining in that work for someone else and helping make that happen through someone else. Mary's story is also instructive to me as a pastor and as a dad because it takes all of this out of the abstract and makes it concrete. I think about if a, if a poor pregnant teenage girl showed up at the doorsteps of Oak Church, that it would be really, like I, I think about how I would react if or when that happens. It's always good to run these scenarios ahead of time. But it, like, it would be tempting to like, at best to see her as someone who has a problem that needs to be solved, like needs resources thrown at her, needs something to help her. Um, or it could even be tempting at worst to see her as a problem needing solving. But for as complicated as Mary's situation is, as complicated as all of our situations necessarily are, God is working. God is coming. That Jesus comes via Mary in this particular way reminds us that no one is a problem, that every quote unquote problem is an opportunity for joy to be born. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that problems don't come and that times aren't hard, that hardship isn't real, that anxiety doesn't permeate our minds and our world. It just means that the wise and prophetic words uh, of some of my favorite songwriters, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings, it just means that hard times ain't gonna rule my mind when they do come. It means that, that 
we have a different ruler, our true king, who is coming to us to rule. And, and it's, not, it's not through hardship, it's through joy, it's through interrupting uh, this sort of downward spiral of despair and bringing about the pink candle, the eruption of joy. I think back to the psalm that we sang and that the Wislink fellas read, Psalm 126, that has that great line. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. A key feature of Jesus's, of God's salvation that came to us in Jesus and that will come again to us in Christ is joy. A key feature of God's salvation is joy. It's an interrupting joy that brings an incursion of grace into the world that is hell-bent on scarcity. It just says that there's more, that there can be more. There might not necessarily be more, but there can be more. This week, uh, I was reflecting on that, that kind of clash between uh, joy and despair. The, this, uh, this week, um, Brandon Bernard was executed by the state. And this was a, a tragic moment as it always is. Any execution is a state claiming some sort of ultimate authority and enacting some sort of ultimate finality. Every time this happens, our, our country and our culture kind of tell on themselves. It, it gives away the fact that the best that we can imagine uh, in return for death is death. The best that we can often imagine, imagine in return for death is death. So any execution like Brandon's closes down the possibility of forgiveness, of, form, of transformation, of, of newness of life. Every time there's an execution, it closes off all of these chances, all of this possibility. None of these things obviously will bring back the two victims slain by the 19 year old man, but neither will his own death. What if instead there was hope? What if instead there was room for joy? What if that is what Advent hospitality means, it's making room for joy? What if instead there was an outlook that said, even though this doesn't at all look like there could possibly be more because God comes into the world at its very darkness, we'll let hope and joy collude. What if there was an outlook that knew that because God already has come and when he came, he suffered at the hands of both the church and the state so that mysteriously his death would be for the salvation of the world, and even though he was in the grave for two days, on the third day by the Spirit, he was raised to prove that there is always more. That hope and joy collude because Jesus is Lord over even death. And Jesus is coming again. I, I, I chased a little bit of a rabbit trail this week when I was... When I was um, uh, kind of thinking through how joy often comes to those who are closest to suffering, either firsthand experiencing their own suffering. Um, and it could be like a low hum of suffering, or it could be a high point of a particular moment of suffering. 
And I went through Luke's gospel and picked out every single uh, character that was mentioned by name or sometimes even groups of characters and, and tried to chart. And this is very scientific, it's in an Excel document. And I, I, I went and charted and coded, um, uh, you know, one through five scale, the amount of suffering that a person um, was likely experiencing, uh, again, according to me, um, and also the amount of joy that they would come to experience through the presence of God in Christ. And this has everyone like at the upper right hand of this is Mary, right? Like uh, great suffering um, and amazingly magnified great joy. At the bottom left of this is, is a character, one of the very first characters mentioned in Luke's gospel, Herod, um, who reaped great suffering on others, but did not himself experience a whole lot of suffering. Um, and also comes across in Luke's telling as a very joyless character. Uh, somewhere in the middle are some of these other characters, but uh, again, I, I think you can see the trend in the commonality in Luke's gospel is um, those who experience great suffering also seem most open to experiencing great joy. Uh, there's, uh, I didn't get to depict it on here, but there's almost like clouds uh, in this at the, the top right and the bottom left that show up in things like um, like uh, like the Magnificat, you know, that the low uh, will be raised up. Those experiencing suffering will be given the opportunity for joy and the uh, those currently experiencing great joy um, will then have some degree of suffering, right? Um, and so there's almost like clouds at these two poles and maybe some sort of trend line. I've, I've come to think that this phenomena is, is probably more of the rule than the exception that, that those who suffer uh, most are most open to great joy. But I think I've also, um, I think this has taught me that um, joy as often as we hope for and expect it to show up in our own lives, joy is not often created in laboratories, like under ideal conditions. It's more likely to come about more acutely experienced in or near suffering or by those or with those who are suffering. That's where joy shows up. That's where joy shows up in Luke's good news again, a good news that Jesus proclaims to the poor. Suffering doesn't trigger joy. Don't get that out of whack. Like correlation is not causation here, right? <laughs> Steph says the scientists love scatter plots. That's great. Um, like correlation isn't ca causation here. And don't ding me if I'm not like incredibly statistically sound here. But I think suffering exposes us, exposes those who suffer to some form of hope. Like suffering might not equate to joy, but suffering opens us up to hope. And, and it's, it's hope that is a song in a weary throat, as Polly says. It requires us to walk in faith because when you suffer, whether it's like sickness or poverty or lack of power or persecution, it tests your ability, it tests our ability to see. I think of the Hebrews 11 phrase, uh, 
faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I think in some ways this, this means that faith is more possible for the have-nots. This is what it means, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Faith is more possible for the have-nots. Hope doesn't necessarily come easy or natural for those who suffer or who are constantly surrounded by pain, but it sure is a more like immediate and accessible tool in their toolbox. Our goal in seasons like this, pandemic seasons like this, Advent seasons like this, is to continue to grow in hope and expectation so that hope becomes more of a reflex than a chore. Like hope is the thing that we do when we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we just become more hopeful people. Sometimes we'll also need to purpose to hope. Sometimes we'll need to get some of the ability to hope through people around us who love us and who know when we can't hope for ourselves. This, this is a hope that is anchored and earthy and incarnational. And it's not like a cheap hope of greeting cards and escapism and zero sum thinking that pushes us away from hope and into wagon circling in despair. Because where there is hope, there can be joy. Where there is hope, there can be joy. And Mary's Psalm tells us uh, that this joy is, is um, that this joy magnifies. This joy is exponential. Regardless of circumstances, God's joy, just like God's love, becomes unconditional. Not dependent on what we've done or how things are going, but steadfast and reliable and subversive. Despite, but also exactly in what we see and what we feel, this hope says that joy is coming, that good is coming, that hope and joy collude to bear witness to the fact that God is coming. God has come. God comes to us and in Christ God will come again. You all pray with me. Lord Jesus, strengthen our ability to hope. Strengthen the content of that hope that it might not be hope in our own power or our own even ability to hope, but um, that all of this might be a gift from you that faces us in the right direction and helps us hang in long enough to see good come. Thanks for um, Mary's words, Mary's song that echoes and still resonates. May that be a song on our lips in this season of waiting and hoping and even joy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.